Welcome to New York's Finest, Retired and Unfiltered Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to explore the life and experiences of those who at one time held a front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, policing the streets of New York City. This show hosts a wide variety of guests from all walks of life and professions, but remains centered around introducing retired members of the NYPD to our audience while having real unfiltered discussions. Please tune in each week and like and subscribe to hear true crime stories and opinions on past and present events like you've never heard them before. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to the show. I got my guest with me, Eric Dim. We're going to part two. Part one was was a ride, to say the least. You know, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to hear what officers have to go through today and the post-Michael Brown era, the post-George Floyd era of the way police officers are treated on the job. We didn't even get into the stresses of the job, the scheduling, none of that. And we're going to get into that here. And I just... You know, Eric's got a lot to offer us, and I just, I really, I want to get through all these questions with him. He's very insightful, and I think, you know, I think he's got a lot more to offer than just what we heard. And even that show, I'm going to be listening to that show a few times myself, and I'm sure you guys are too. So, uh, you know, Eric, welcome back to the show, my friend. You know, thank you for, for sharing your story with us again and taking the time out again. To, to come back and further to continue to serve the people in New York city, continue to help your brothers and sisters on the police force, you know? And uh, so if you don't mind, I'd like to start with um, another thing, you know, I, I found it very interesting about the fact that most of your complaints came out around 2018. If you don't mind, I'd like to start with what you feel about the use ref- the use of force reporting. If you could explain it to the audience and then, how, what your thoughts are on that. I'm glad you said that. So they actually came out with some patrol guide procedures of what you document and what's considered use of force and what levels they actually, you know, they had different levels. So this was considered, so these categories would be level one force and you would have to notify your, uh, the next highest ranking supervisor. If it was a level two, certain categories of type of force, that would have to go to the duty captain. If it was a level three, it would go to internal affairs. If it was level four, it would go to the force division. And when it started out, it, you know, a certain type of application we would use would be considered, oh, that's not force. Like, for instance, uh, if you take someone down and, and they would say, if it's a forcible takedown, you document it, and that's considered force. But if you guide someone to the ground, then you don't have to document it. But we know how this job works. Eventually, it just came to the point where let's document everything because we can't really interpret is that a forcible takedown or did you guide him to the ground? Because that's all but the perception. Yep. Many times I went for uh, what we call on this job GO15s, which means you're being investigated. You get interviewed by the inspection unit. This is for the public if they don't know. And they would ask, you know, in many cases, I didn't document for myself or for my personnel a takedown. And they would say, well, you took the person down. Why didn't you document it? Well, in my perception, this is not a forcible takedown. This is just, this is regular routine police work because it's always smarter. If I have a six foot uh, person of interest, six foot five, obviously it's much smarter to bring this person to the ground and put 
a person who's three foot in handcuffs. But it came to the point where now everything had to be documented. And it was really convoluted. And I don't think the job really got to definitively got to a point where we could say, yes, this is the takedown or not. But then it came to a point where everything has to go to the duty captain. So if you take, if you have to use different app, different applications of force, or someone uses force against you, we do what's called uh, a TIR report, right? Right, resistant TRI, right, resistant injury report, and that report would document the force that the police officers used and the force that was used against them. And unfortunately, with this job, it's always some t- some type of stats or statistics, and then they had a TRI stat, they had a force stat. And then I noticed, uh, I myself particularly, along with my teams, we started to get flagged. Because obviously when we're engaged in proactive police work, we're looking to seek out the most violent perpetrators. These were the ones that has his, had histories of resisting, propensity for violence. So we accumulated, we generated a large list of TRI reports. And so now we were flagged as using too much force. And I, I also believe that the Civilian Complaint Review Board now weaponize this to substantiate complaints, where in many cases it's necessary. We're, we're, we're approaching someone who has a legal firearm with a history of numerous shootings, and we know now with the, with the bail reform, they're, they're out. These vile perpetrators that we had a head on with are out, and they're facing the barrel of three open cases for various shootings. In one particular case, I'll never forget this, this young, uh, young uh, kid we arrested, he was from a local crew called the Jack Boys in the South Bronx. And he had six shooting cases for that year. And the only reason they finally put him in jail on the sixth case, the adversary uh, was deceased and died. So this is what we're dealing with. Obviously, we're going to use force. So the more active police officer, the more you engage the public, the more TRIs you generate. So obviously, uh, in, in many cases, some of the guys that worked for me wanted to withdraw or they wanted to find administrative positions. One of my sergeants, who's one of the best crime sergeants I've ever had, is now working in operations so he can sit by a desk so he doesn't have to face the face this kind of stuff. And we're losing talented people out in the streets. Yeah. So, and, and for those of you that don't know, prior to the try reports, and, and I think these came in around 2016, but they weren't hot and heavy. Like Eric said, like it, it more and more things became force. But prior to that, the only type of force that was documented was if somebody resisted arrest or if there was an injury sustained to a, to a prisoner. Prior to that, those are the only type of documentation you could have, but it didn't it didn't uh court like it like what the job tried to do is say hey we want to track people that are constantly using force but basically in every arrest situation <laughs> you're documenting a try report so that that report is going to get forwarded to the internal affairs division the internal affairs division is going to take that report uh you're getting an allegation right away just for the just for the report being generated. You already have an allegation against you right there. Boom. Use of force level one, use of force level two, use of force level three. And I think there's even another level use of force. I, I forget. I don't remember. But uh, but so you get that use of force complaint. And then anything that was stated in there is another allegation. And all of those allegations get forwarded to the CCRB, right? So now you have two concurrent investigations against you for something that the 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 person who was arrested 
might not even complained about. So it's a lot of self-reporting in this era of the police department and we're tagging good cops. And the pressure is immense, especially now when, you know, the, the you know, after the George Floyd incident, the demonization of the police, the anti-police legislation, the pro-criminal legislation, the rhetoric from our elected, the unwillingness of really any any strong voice in leadership in the police department, including former police commissioners, to actually even bring a common sense voice to any of this has really push guys like your sergeant to say, what the hell am I doing here? I'm trying to do my job and they're coming after me. This is a stressful, stressful, stressful job. I don't think anybody understands what that feels like. And now the talk is even further in city council. It was to fund the police. Now it's let's abolish the police. Let's take away their uh, uh, qualified immunity so that now when a police officer is sued and you could sue a police officer because you don't like the way he ate his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. When he took a bite of it, he stared at you aggressively. And that might be constituted as a use of force right there. Uh, I didn't feel safe to leave. I didn't feel safe to free. He was staring at me. Eric was staring at me while he was eating his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He did this because I'm a male and I'm a married, you know, like all of these ridiculous things will generate allegation after allegation after allegation. And, and you could get sued for that and be per held personally responsible where you now your assets and your financial investments and possibly your your freedom will be taken away for doing what you were asked to do the way you were trained to do it. So I, I honestly I don't blame them for going in. I really don't. Um, do you feel that there's anyone in leadership currently in the NYPD advocating for officers? That's a great question. So that that I think is a very relative question. So I think at, at the low level, in most cases, our lieutenants, which is the top tier at the at the lowest level, at the command level, they're advocating for their guys. But, it, you know, the, the buck doesn't stop there. That's the problem. They're hit with major obstacles. And then when you get to the captain, that's really where the problem comes in. And I'm not trying to knock the captains. And I'm not trying to knock the commanding officers, but they're really put in a position where they kind of have to play both sides. So in many cases, yes, I can understand they want, they may want to protect their guys, but they also have to answer to their chiefs and a constant of how they're generating, how they're driving these guys out there to get these firearm arrests. So they're well aware that they're putting these guys in the limelight and they're putting them in fire. So that's where things need to change because the commanding officers they're like subcontractors. They're there. They're at the precinct. They're guests. They're not permanent residents. They come to a precinct for a two, three-year period, right, to try to do a job that gets them, and God willingly, you know, I, I wish them well, to get promoted to the next level. And the only way for them to get to the next level is that the guys in that precinct that are doing proactive policing have an effect on crime in their in that re- uh, particular precinct. And what does that take? That takes proactive policing. So the guys that are out there that are that are heavily weighted, that are getting these commanding officers, commanding officers promoted are the ones that are generating these complaints. And by the time that these complaints get generated and investigated, these commanding officers, since they are guests, they're onto their, they're moving on their careers. They're not in the precinct anymore. So they're not there to support you for something you, you did while you were under their command. So it's really, it's been up to the lieutenants to kind of protect their people, but there's only so much they could do. 
because they don't have the power with the executive staff. And I'm sure you could probably agree with this. I absolutely, I 100% agree with it. I mean, I, you know, I, I never spoke to you on this, but, you know, it's something that really made me start to reflect in my career was the Eric Garner incident. You know, I watched, I didn't know Danny Panaleo, but from what I know about him, he was a good cop. He was an anti-crime cop. He was on the sergeant's list. He was the go-to guy in the precinct, you know, sort of like you are, sort of like I was, you know, like very well respected by everybody, the cops, the supervisors, the community. And he was asked to go out and arrest Eric Garner that day for, for, committing a minor crime, selling Lucy's and marijuana in front of the store. He observes him sell the, the Lucy in front of the store. He goes to stop him. And uh, he takes him down, takes Eric Garner down to the ground. Uh, Eric Garner resists arrest. They get Eric Garner cuffed. They roll Eric Garner to his side to promote free breathing. This is all exactly how I was trained. He calls an ambulance as Eric Garner is saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He calls an ambulance. Ambulance comes. This is all how I was trained in the police academy. They threw no punches. They threw no kicks. Even though Eric Gardner's back was to a plate glass window. And when Danny goes to take him down, they almost go through that plate glass window. And they would have both been dead if if that would have happened. So I was actually scared when I saw the video that that's what was going to happen. I would have leaned towards pulling him towards me and striking him with a closed fist to bring him to the ground, to get him to the ground um, more, more than hop on his back. Cause he's a big dude. And once you go up on his back, he's taking you for a ride wherever he wants to go. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have did that. You know, I'm only five, nine, I'm 200 pounds. I work out, but still he was a, a very big, he was a very big man, Eric Garner. And um, so he takes him down to the ground. They go back to the precinct that day. Uh, Chief of Patrol at the time is James O'Neill. James O'Neill says to the whole team, don't worry about it. You guys did nothing wrong. I watched the video. You guys did nothing wrong. And Danny Panaleo eventually, years down the road, James O'Neill is now the police commissioner. He fires Danny Panaleo. He says for the betterment of the city, basically saying he didn't want riots, so he's going to fire this cop for not committing a crime, for not doing anything that violated the patrol guide. Um, so I think right then and there, the leadership, it's, it's, it, it's the integrity has to be questioned in leadership at this point, you know? And, and I, I know you said you don't have an issue with the commanding officers, and I don't either, but I see a lot more bosses these days and i see a lot less leaders i hear a lot of stuff going on out there from guys that you know i just get it done and i don't care and i don't care about you and i don't care about your thoughts and i don't care about your family and i don't care about that i'm going to turn my back on you when it goes wrong you know just go do it well that's my issue so as a special special operations lieutenant i went to comstat for years uh and so if, if the public uh wants to know so how it works at comstat the commanding officers go there to they're held accountable for their commands, but the special operations lieutenant, along with the field intelligence officer, they they assist the commanding officer in his appearance for accountability. And you know, the special special operations lieutenant obviously has the most knowledge of the conditions for the command and what it requires. And the field intelligence officer has information. So we're there to assist the commanding officer to show accountability, to show how we deploy personnel, show the people that were targeted, how we're holding crime down. So that's the problem. We see the panel, and I would say the dais of these chiefs that are in control, the crime strategy unit. And they're, you would say, I would sit there and I would talk about this with fellow lieutenants. 
and say, I sat through this concert and I felt like I was here and it was the 90s because they talked to us. It was almost like they were talking about broken windows policing. But then I would hear these same chiefs talk on TV with different uh, different interviewer pals and they would talk about neighborhood coordination policing. So they were talking two sides of their mouth. So when it comes to leadership, that's where we were failed. So what I was saying at the low level, the commanding officers were kind of sandwiched in between because this was the rhetoric that they had to they had to supply. But at the same time, they're knowing that they had to send their guys, their most talented people out in the wolves, because the more police work that you do, you're now generating yourself your own disciplinary history, which is going which you're going to have to face with this matrix. And like I said, you pile on the TRIs, you pile on the complaints. So we're losing the talent because there's only a matter of time before we know the language that we have to take these guys off the shelf. And, and so the public knows what that means when they take you off the shelf. It means we have to put you somewhere on a desk so that you have less exposure. Yet you did nothing wrong, but the optics are out there that you are brutalizing the community because you've generated force complaints through CCRB and you generated force reports. Obviously, you had to use force because you're you're trying to you're garnering and you're arresting the most violent perpetrators. So it goes hand to hand. So I, I used to say, well, listen, you have to you kind of kind of like you can't cherry pick. You know, do you want myself and teams to go out and get these gun arrests? Well, that's a byproduct that we're going to generate complaints. We're going to generate these force reports. So I need you to back us and show us support. So the support was only met so far, you know, and, and it was always kind of like, you know, we were, were, were on a fine line. It was almost like we were on a tightrope at a circus and we were balancing, but at any point we could fall off of it. And, and that's how it always felt. And so many times we would say, hey, we need to slow down a little bit. We need to be careful and protect our careers, but it's in our blood because as soon as we got out in that car, in that unmarked car, and we saw that person of interest that had the behavioral indicates that this person had a legal firearm, we forgot about all these things that could hurt us. And we went to grab that perpetrator and we had to worry about it and face the consequences years later because the civilian complaint review board, as they were generating more power, and, and I'm really confident that they were weaponizing by waiting for things to mount up before they started substantiating charges. Because they, they could have substantiated the charge for myself right away, but they waited for them to pile up and they served me with eight in one year. And these were all old cases. And that was so they could mount up and build their own case against me. So it would be punitive. And their ultimate goal was termination, which obviously uh, they did not succeed. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think what you're saying here is like, and I think I think I'm saying the same thing. And if you guys don't get it, like wh- what I'm saying is I don't have a problem that you want to track everything. I, I think it could be good and it could be a useful tool and we could be transparent. But why is our leadership not truly being transparent with the public? You know, like why are they not truly being transparent? Like, yeah, this guy's got 115 allegations against him, but the guy's out there every day. He probably he interacts with hundreds of people every week. You know, maybe some nights you interacted with hundreds of people. You're out there proactively yes. policing. And and who are these allegations from is the other question, right? Like, that's the other question, right? Because it's like, oh, is it some old lady that's walking down the block? Is it some guy that was going to work that day that you're getting an allegation for being a bully from? No. Who are those allegations from? Who are the majority of your allegations from? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I finally have the opportunity to uh... – let the public know. They call the Civilian Complaint Review Board. But for me, it should be 
you know, prison arraignment review board because I have 30 cases, 30 civilian complaint review uh, cases against uh, on my record for my entire career. If you actually balance that out in 18 years and nine months, it's actually not that many considering the amount of people I've interacted with. But every single case was an arrest situation. Some of them were illegal firearms. Some of them were robberies. Some of them were shootings. Every particular case was an arrest situation. Every case. So every case was potentially somebody that had the ability and their history of turning the average citizen's dream into a nightmare just by just by interacting with this person that day. And here we are. And I see these articles about you. And I'm like, I can't even believe it because I, I know you for years. And I'm like, this is this is like Eric's not a, a rough guy. He's not. He loves people. He likes to get to know yes. people. I'm like, he's not. He doesn't have a racist bone in his body. He doesn't have a vicious bone in his body. I'm like, you know, and, and, and you know, like you would went out there and did your job. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to pry too much into that, but I just I just wanted to highlight that part of it. No, I appreciate it. I just want to let the public know that I take extreme offense to the ideology that CCLB is trying to paint me as a racist. And, you know, what they don't know is they only see uh, Eric Dim, the lieutenant that gets these guys out there to arrest people. Yes, that's a necessary uh, facet. But I, they don't know is that I volunteer a majority of my time also with the NYPD Explorer Program, particularly at PSA 7. And these kids, particularly this neighborhood, the South Bronx is 99% minority. It's 39% Hispanic, uh, 39% black and 60% Hispanic. So 99% of the kids in the PSA 7 Explorer Program are minorities. And I volunteer my time. I teach these kids swimming, self-defense, situation awareness. I even, I just did on my way out, I, on my way out of retirement, uh, I took about 20 of these PSA 7 Explorers to the Yogi Bear uh, compound in Newport's where they got to go uh, in water parks. And I set it up and we got the whole thing for free. And we made an entire day for them because these kids in the inner city don't have the opportunity to do this. And they loved it. And they wrote cards to me and told me how um, I, I've been impactful on their life and how I've been like a father and mentor of these kids. And I have a great love for these kids. And none of these kids are from my community. They're all minorities. And I have nothing but love for them. So the idea that I'm racist is is such a farce. And it's really offensive. And for the Marines that I've served with that have been injured and died, who are of color and who I love very much, find it offensive because I'm here to help people. I don't care what color they are. I'm here. I observe behaviors, not color. No, the, the, the racist ideology that's being painted with a broad stroke is insane you know even even with the george floyd incident right now i have my own take on that i don't don't, i'm not going to break that down a million times i've spoken about it a million times um but how the fuck did we ever determine that that happened because george floyd was black when was that It it was the fact that oh he did this because George Floyd was black. He kneed on his neck and he stayed there because he was when how when how was that determined? When did we ever determine that? I, I like I, I'll never forget that. That how how it, it went into racism and and policing. And I'm like, what the fuck are we talking about here? I was like, you know, the the, the tactics well, that Yeah, go go ahead, go. No, no, no. I, I don't want to stop it, but I, I that really brings this vision in my head. And I've I've had this idea of an experiment for a long time, and I think it would prove true. 
and, and the race has become about minority versus blue. And they, they've, they've, the, the liberal, liberal ideology, these uh, anti-police advocates have generated its own race and blue has become its own color. And I want to prove it. So I watched some of these videos, particularly you probably saw recently, there was a good Samaritan who was assisting two, two cops. It looked like some type of department store clothing and they were wrestling. They really had a tough time wrestling with this particular person of interest. And the good Samaritan helped them. And he, he's kneeling on this person's back, kneeling on the chest. He helps them get him in handcuffs. And everyone was praising this good Samaritan. And I praise him also. But prior to them actually releasing it to this public, I had this great idea of, and this experiment I would love to do is, can we release this to, to the public and superimpose a police uniform on this good Samaritan? Would we get the same outcome Will we get the same cheer and praise from the public? No, I think they would condemn it and say that this police officer is brutalizing the community. And then let's play that same video again with the Good Samaritan. And I think they would be surprised to find out it's just about the color blue. No, you're right. I mean, I saw the I, another video that, that comes to mind that you're talking about that is the uh, jujitsu expert, Row the Show. He's walking down Canal Street. There's, he, there's some like, crazy guy. I don't know what he's doing. He's walking around. He's looking for victims and he's punching people in the face that he thinks he could get away yes. with punching in the face. Row the show sees it, follows him up the block. He punches someone else. Before he gets to do it again, he deploys jujitsu tactics on him. He, do, he puts a seatbelt hold on him. Takes him down, sits on his back. Right? Everybody's great yes. show. He's front page of the paper. He's on, he's on mainstream media. He's all over the TV. What nobody talked about is that if that was a police officer, they would have been arrested for, and they would have been charged with a misdemeanor for violating the chokehold bill, the so-called diaphragm bill, um, where cops in the in the heat of a moment while you're fighting someone, you're you and while you're fighting for your life most of the time because every situation there's is is there's a firearm there. It's your firearm, whether he has a uh, firearm or not, right? That could potentially be used against everybody on New York City streets, including yourself. So you're present, you're preserving life. Um, they're telling you, you you're stuck in here. You can't choke somebody. You can't put someone in what could potentially look like a chokehold now, a headlock or anything like that. And nor could you ever put pressure on a person's diaphragm, their chest or their back intentionally or unintentionally. If I fall on you, it's a misdemeanor. Like, is, like what, what are your thoughts on that, Bill? That, that Bill is... Well, you know what? This is total lunacy because I'm a, I'm, I'm actually an advocate for jujitsu myself. I train. It's a wonderful art. And if anybody who trains in jujitsu, they know that there's a more there's there's a bigger picture. There's more of a mental aspect of jujitsu than there is even a physical aspect because they talk about the mindset of being calm, controlling, treating people with respect. This is the art of jujitsu. And you know, we get uh. Uh, Henna Gracie, you probably see him all the time on the internet, and he's really an advocate. He's become an ambassador for the police and the connection with jujitsu. And he always talks about if we take away th these jujitsu tactics, then we have to be more brutal. You're forcing the cops to use, utilize hand strikes, fists, batons, tasers, where jujitsu is more of a calming effect and controlling someone. And, and, and chokes are actually, it would be a, a great idea to use as an applicable means. You know, people train jujitsu. Three hundred thousand people, or maybe a million people, get choked out a year, and nobody dies. 
because they're pride probably and they train for it. So I think there's something that the police department really needs to exploring and the public needs to start accepting because, you know, it's total lunacy when it's acceptable, both for the good Samaritan, but if it's a police officer does it, it's a total atrocity. And that just shows you the, the hatred that these advocates have gotten for the police department because it's not about the action. It's about the blue. That's the color. And I think that now we're showing reverse racism and they become racist towards the blue uniform. Yeah, I think I think black cops, especially in New York City, they get they get it worse than white people. They get it Absolutely. worse than the white cops. You know, like the, the 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 names they're called. I'm like, what the what the hell is this? Like, you know, I'm like, what? Yes. I, I've never like real hate and vitriol from everybody, whites, blacks, and his, Hispanics, Asians. They feel free to call a black cop anything they like i'm like whoa i thought we were anti-racist here you know during this whole you know the summer of love in 2020 i was like what happened i thought you guys were anti-racist what happened you know it was it's it's funny you say this no i'm sorry but you say the summer of love and i just it's funny you say the summer of love because i mean i can't help to laugh and and see the irony of some of the stuff so the article that they put about uh myself as the most complained cop so there was some girl that put a tiktok out if if you had an opportunity to see it but I read the comments, and it's it's all hate mail. I've I've had death threats where you know visit his family, retire his life. So the same people are saying, "Hey, the police department needs to treat the public respect." They're giving myself death threats. I mean, I can't help to laugh at this irony. It's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. That's no, crazy. And and just to back up on on uh, not even to back up. I think I think we're on the topic. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you about training, but I just wanted to make a point about the Eric Garner incident. That after Danny Penale was fired, they fired him because Eric Gardner fell on his arm and James O'Neill fired him because he said that when Eric Gardner was on his arm for three seconds, that's causing his death. When that was provably on the autopsy, false. But so he fires him for that. So then they come out with a training video for Eric Gardner and the training video starts with uh, the police officer who was showing the tactics. It starts with him face down on the ground with his hands behind his back being completely cooperative and i was like that's a great video i mean it's great to start there but that's not it has nothing to do with the incident that happened how did he how did we get him to the ground with his hands behind his back you know that was the nypd training till today we've never had another training so i feel the training in the police department has went to this total nonsensical video style click the box training like what do you feel about department trainer right now oh a hundred percent you know we talk about jocko womick and i heard jocko womick talk about policing and he said something that i i saw i said it in the same of some some of substance but what he said is so smart he said that a police officer needs to train 20 percent of the time so that means a five-day work period one day needs to be dedicated to its training and that's throughout your career to be substantially trained because training is something that we should never stop. We have to constantly train, right? And repetition makes you good at something and understand it. But one little video, you know, it's just CYA, just so the police department can cover themselves. And if some situation does seem to arise or becomes the optics and the cream of the crop for the public, well, that's that, that video is going to be, be weaponized to end your career. And, and it's a shame. So these cops are set up for failure, you know, we need to train constantly. And, and here's the other problem I used to always say. So in that video, we have the compliant person of interest. And then 
the other side of the spectrum is we always have the person with the fire on. So the job trains you for the person that's extremely compliant, and then they train you for the person that has the fire on. So here I am, close to a 20-year career. I've been involved in thousands of arrests that included illegal firearms, and I never fired my weapon. I can count on one hand how many times I actually retracted my firearm and actually pointed at someone. And yet, we, and yet I've been in, in thousands of tussles, violent struggles for that firearm. So here we are. We train for the compliant person and the person with the firearm. But we've lost the middle ground. We don't train for that violent struggle. That's a big problem. And the, and the FBI did this, you know, the public wants to see us use our tasers. And they think it's this magic potion. The FBI did a study that the taser is effective 48% of the time. So what does that mean? That's basically a flip of the coin. It may work. It may not. And in a metropolis, in a metropolis like we work, the taser is not always effective because the taser is effective when you have distance. So if people for understand if I'm in close range and those darts hit just my chest area. Well, that's the only part of my body that's, be, that's going to be incapacitated. And the rest of my body could still be utilized, you know, with, without one limb. I could still be a violent person. Now, when I have distance and that prong hits my ankle and my chest, now I could debilitate the entire body. But that requires distance. So like I said, one size, police is not one size fits all. That may work in a parking lot at the 7-Eleven, you know, in, in a rural or suburban area. But, but in a metropolis where we work and we're always in close proximity, the taser is not always an effective tool. No one likes to see the baton. Punches are ugly. They don't want to see chokes. So I asked the public, please, let's worth it. Tell us, what do you want to see? We're only told what they don't want to see. But what do you want to see? And I always do this experiment. I even did a, a couple of uh, seminars and presentations. I did one at Monroe College. And if anybody would like to invite me and I can show them, and I always do this experiment where I pull my arms across like this. And I usually take about eight of the biggest guys or girls. And I say, okay, listen, you got two minutes on the clock. You need to pull my arms apart, get them behind my back. And the time stops. And usually in a two minute period, they can't even get my arms apart. And they're sweating. They're out of breath. And I said, no. Oh, and now they get a better understanding of what it is to be a police officer. Because they say to themselves, wow, now I can see why you have to utilize punches, why you have to start using a stick. And how ugly it can become. And what I usually do, and I did, I did this also at Krav Maga school. So I, I'm very into martial arts training. I do, I do believe it develops the mind. And I did that at Krav Maga school. And I, we always record it. So they have an opportunity to watch it. And I had a lot of people that had some misunderstanding. And after when they watched the video, they took me down to the ground. And they were trying to get their arms behind my, my back. They found, they watched the video, and they didn't even know they did it. Some of them had their knees on, their, on my head. Some had their knees on my back, and they they said they didn't even know that happened until they watched the video, and they really got a better understanding of of, of how immense it is and how someone's arms become a vice. And it doesn't matter, you know. I'm not a little guy. You can take someone who's small, and with the right substances on PCP, we know how violent these people can be. So it's really something we need to explore. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That the uh, the training is lacking. I think, you know, when they say, oh, we're the most heavily trained department in the world, I think the only reason you see, it's really a testament to the men and the women on the street, because like I said, the volume of jobs, like I said in the first one, the volume of jobs we go to, we learn with training every time. 
we're learning every job. You know, when you have good leadership, when you have good leaders like yourself that are reassessing each scenario, hey, we could have did this better. Oh, we messed up here. Oh, we did this. Right. So like your your training's on the job, but that's not really great because it's sex out, right? Like you're in PSA seven. Uh, what about the guys in PSA six? Maybe their boss isn't a strong leader. Maybe they, they deploy different tactics, right? So it's not this uniformed approach throughout. It it breaks down into sex. Like I got very good at doing car stops and anti-crime, working with the same five guys, the same tactics over and over again. That was my training. My training was from guys and girls like you. I didn't learn much after the academy, uh, uh, like after that. Like my the training was was lacking. To say the least, you know what I mean? To say the least. And, and you know, you see people in those those settings that you're talking about right there, and there's no potential for them to get hurt or get killed or for anybody else to. And they're doing things that they don't they didn't even know they would do. So imagine when your adrenaline's flowing, your, your, your frontal lobe shuts down, and you're just reverting on fight or flight and and in that scenario it's already a fight and and you're just you're just you're you're reverting to what you know works yes um, so w- what do you think about like currently in new york city there's there's a bunch of things going on there's a bunch of different factors we we, we hear about bail reform all the time all the time and bail reform in my opinion should be completely repealed you know it's on this basis of you know that we're again criminalizing poverty you know what do you think as far as um as far as uh the all of these district attorneys and we see it the five borough district attorneys the guy that stands out the most is Alvin Bragg in Manhattan but I do believe it's all of them they're not even prosecuting 90% of these cases and they're saying that they're saying that the reason they're not doing it is they're citing staffing issues. So before these guys are even getting to the point where bail reform would kick in, they're not even ever getting charged. So you have legit, you have guys, and, and, and this holds true for violent repeat gun defenders too. They're not charged 90% of the time. And then when it's so egregious that they actually get charged, it's become so egregious then at that point, now you have to deal with all the factors of bail reform. What 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 do you like? Could you give any insight from the from like the inside view as to like what's going on with these district attorneys and what your thoughts are for that? Hold on, I'm just having a volume issue here. Hold on, one second. I'm sorry. No, don't worry about executing ninety percent of these crimes. So bail reform really doesn't even kick in until they decide to bring a case to actually bring a case to trial, right? Bail reform, when, when you know, a police officer brings a case and presents it to the DA, 90% of the time what we're seeing in New York City is the case isn't even getting prosecuted. And they're saying that due to staffing issues, they're unable to go through with the case. This holds true for violent repeat offenders with guns, with people who assault people, with robberies, with every end of the spectrum, all the way down to minor crimes. So then in the most egregious parts the most egregious crimes in like the 10% of the time when they actually bring it to trial. Now you have to deal with all of the issues with bail reform, which again are releasing the most egregious offenders because 90% of them are just walking out the door uncharged and you would never even know it. Like as to your point earlier, you would think this kid's a saint. And meanwhile, he's been arrested four times with a gun and it was just never charged. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? 
so I, I, you know what? I love that question. And that's a topic that we constantly talk about with each other. So I actually feel that, for one, the district attorneys have allowed too much emotion involved in their policies. I mean, I, I, re- I heard you talk recently, which is so true. Lady Justice is supposed to be covered with a blindfold and supposed to s- swing with a sword. But what we're finding is that these district attorneys are now allowing their emotions involved and they're not prosecuting, right? They talk about how to rehabilitate, what would be better. That's up to the people. You represent the people. You're supposed to protect the people by prosecuting cases. You're not supposed to allow your emotions or your ideology into policy. And yet they, and here's the, the irony to it, I feel. So they claim that their policies are to hurt, help and rehabilitate these potential perpetrators on the street. And I think in these cases, they're actually hurting them because if if I am not rehabilitated and I go out there and I commit crime, I'm in a gang, I can't get out of and I and I commit a shooting. If you let me out immediately now, by the time that I get to court, instead of facing the barrel of one shooting, I've committed three acts of shootings. And now by the time I get to court now, eventually I'm going to go to jail for a good time because I faced now I have three shootings I've been involved in. So I really think they're actually hurting the perpetrators and they're not rehabilitating these guys for that factor. If I commit a robbery or I am, I, I legitimately, I have uh, a disease that I thrive on burglaries and I'm involved in that. And I can't. And by the time that I get to court, I've now committed 10 burglaries. I'm facing 11 felonies rather than facing one. And for the police officer, it's really hurt morale because they put a lot of effort into, you know, the, the studies, the analysis, particularly with proactive policing, right? And then we grab a person of interest and then you bring them to court. And now because with the bail reform, you're missing one piece of paper for discovery. And now this person is out in the street. This is lunacy. This is, you know, all the stat, all the cards are stacked against the police and in favor of the alleged criminal. And I say alleged criminal because you're innocent until proven guilty. But let's be honest, it's no coincidence that if we have some guy who's been arrested 30 times for the same incident, it's a high probability that they are guilty. Yeah, I, I keep saying I, I don't know who benefits from this. And, and, and to your point, too, I, I, even, even the people that you're saying you're protecting, you're leaving victims all the way in the back, right? Victims of crime aren't even talked about, right? We're just pushing them. We're actually re-victimizing the victim, which is a famous term that the police department used to use. They are actually re-victimizing the victim now. They're, they're putting them all the way in the back. It doesn't matter. This perpetrator could go do harm to you again. And under the guise that we're going to reform the perpetrator through some social program, when we have no social program, that's been effective to date to do such. How do what social program do we have for people who shoot people? What social program do we have for people who break into houses? What social program do we have even for drug addicts currently in New York City? But but yet we're sending billions of dollars to these not for profits, funneling it through. And um, uh, you know, an, another topic that 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 really that really gets under my skin is uh. You know, we keep seeing I keep hearing about the success of the violence intervention program, the violence huh. intervention program, the successes of it. Yet every place it's been implemented in New York City, crime has risen. So I don't know what how we're determining 
the successes of it. Have you had any interaction or any experience with that program? Well, it's funny you say. So in the South Bronx, I, what I've dealt with is the uh, desk appearance ticket program where if someone was arrested and they, qual- and they qualify a desk appearance ticket, they could have, it was sort of like a violence interrupted, but someone would come and talk to them and then they, they could choose if they want this uh, removed from their record, the actual person of interest, the perpetrator that was arrested. They could choose to, to speak to this organization and it would be removed from their record and they would get, they would be involved in like this social program. But in every case, they all denied it. They didn't want the help. They didn't, they, they didn't want this social justice warrior to come talk to them. You know, they were actually laughing. They were telling me, get this guy out of here. I don't even want to talk to him. You know, yeah. I don't even want to hear his nonsense. Just give me my desk appearance or send me to court. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. So, and so it's, it's obviously. It's not working. Yeah. It's not working. It's, it's definitely not. Um, all right. So police re- recruitment nationwide is down. It's I, I think it's down over 60% nationwide the last time I read. Um, I think it's even more in New York City. Um, what do you think, you know, what do you think, it, it, like the, what do you think as far as the inability to recruit and also the mass exodus that we're experiencing in New York City and guys leaving way before their time or people just even leaving the professional altogether? Like what, what factors do you think are into that and like if you have any solutions absolutely so for, uh, i'm glad you asked that uh, it would probably take me about six months to go over this <laughs> go ahead this shoot is not, <laughs> this is not something that happened overnight this was over time over years i mean this whole thing has become to me this is one big giant onion and we would have to peel away the layers for years till we could get back to where we were. I mean, we turned something that was amazing. The best policing in the world, the best crime strategies, New York City was symbolic of crime fighting. And now, you know, in my last year, uh, I did a lot of time working in Times Square. Uh, You know, we would help out. It was an overtime detail and also a way for me to get away from the South Bronx where we're generating those complaints. And I just being in Times Square, I mean, I remember going to Times Square and, you know, during the Giuliani era, how great it became. And, and, and you look around Times Square and I ask myself, why do people come here? It's dirty. It's disgusting. I see violent offenders that I've arrested in the past. It just, it's not a nice place. And I'm, we were constantly breaking up fights. The last time that I worked in Times Square, I heard a ruckus on the corner. I turned around and I knew that sound. I went down the block. And there was a group of blood gang members. They were beating up a tourist and his wife. And they had one of those new gel guns. You see it, those BB guns? They were shooting at them with that. It was just, I asked myself, why do these people come here? Because they still want to believe that New York City is the New York City that they dreamt of. The vision that they had, the one they saw on TV. But they come to find it's not that anymore. And we've lost it. It's really sad. And with the police department, we are losing the most talented, the guys that can teach, and the ones that are the representatives for recruitment, we're losing them. Civilian Complaint Review Board is one of the biggest contributing factors to the drop in morale and why we're losing. Because we're losing personnel. Because, like myself, we can't go out there and help the public and do the necessary police work that we were trained to do. 
because of the backlash that we'll get from the Civilian Complaint Review Board. The amount of reports they'll generate with these TRIs, right? The different stats that your name gets flagged on. So, because it, it's a byproduct of doing good police work. And the irony is that, you know, for these cops out there that never wanted to do any police work, because, listen, the bottom line is, and I'll tell the public this, there's a seat for every ass on this job. If you want to go out there and do proactive policing, there's a spot for you. If you want to sit in a corner and never do police work and just be a statue and be the presence, there's a spot for you, too. But those are the guys that they're trying to get to go into these units because their records are clean. But their records are clean because they didn't do any proactive police work. Right. It's just ironic. And to, to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, I tell them. My guy, my guys and girls that were on the street, the ones that you're substantiating complaints, including myself, we're the ones that you want to come to your door. God forbid you shall need the police. We are the ones that you want because we're going to go out there. We're going to be thorough. We're going to help you. And we're going to be persistent to bring that perpetrator so that you have justice. We're not going to sit there and sit back and just watch it. It's just not another work day for us. We actually take compassion for the people. We want to help. That's why we do it. Yeah, no, it's I mean, we, we've seen it, you know, like really nationwide, you know, like the, the, the conversation is really it's like when it when it comes to law enforcement, there's no honest conversation going on, you know, and, and I, I truly believe that as as the conversation shifted to this police hate to this anti law enforcement to this war on police um, that like. The overwhelming majority of people still supported us, but you would never know by the laws that are being passed by the media and by our politicians. Um, and I would just say to the politicians, like, we really need to have real voices in the community, not not that piece of shit Al Sharpton, not not these political guys that have made money from the city, that make a living off of suing the city. I mean, talking about real people, real mothers, real fathers, real real working people to have a voice at the table to say, if there is an issue with law enforcement, what do you expect? What do you expect in this situation when my son's drinking a beer in the park? How should police approach a group of kids in a park? What do you expect when kids are doing this? What do you expect in this scenario? I mean, you know, although scenarios – you know, it, they'll always go different ways. I don't see why we can't have a civil, rational conversation on what the police, what do we expect to be a police officer? Who should be a police officer? Um, and well, I just then, think, you, yeah. you talked earlier about the, the Civilian Complaint Review Board want the truth. And the reality is they don't want that sit down because they know the truth. They don't want the truth because if the truth is exposed, they lose their they lose their propaganda. I love using that word because that's the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I think that they need to justify their existence again. Like, and by substantiating complaints against officers and proving that, it's more of a reason why they need a bigger budget. They could hire, you know, um, you know, it's it's you know, it's, it's an entity that's looking to survive. Right. So of course it's going to want to grow like anything else, like any other government agency, it's going to want to grow, you know, um, you know, you know, I left over, over the mandates, right. I retired early over the mandate. What, what's your opinion on the vaccine mandate and what effect do you had think it had on the police department? From my personal experience, uh, I have to be honest, I didn't put too much thought into it. So, uh, my ideology was this. Uh, 
I served six years in the Marine Corps. I don't know what they gave me. I got so many shots. So I figured for me, I was, ah, well, what's one more? Yeah. But as time as time went on and, and, and I saw how here we are, we're grown adults and we're Americans, and that's what I fight for. That's what I fought for. That's why I was a Marine. And when I saw that people were getting forced to do it, particularly what what, what was really perturbing was I myself, I never went sick. I think I was fortunate that I didn't contract COVID. And if I did, I was asymptomatic. Uh, so I worked just like yourself and most of the cops that are out there out in the field the entire time during COVID. And at that time, here we are, we're out there with the heroes. And these same people are now are fighting for their jobs or have to make a life decision that they don't want to. And they're being bullied to get that vaccine. So I, that, when it comes to that, I feel we're all adults. It's your body. If you want to get the vaccine, that should be a decision. Now, when it comes to recruitment purposes, if you want to make that a condition of employment for new hires, that makes sense. Hey, if you're a new hire, these are the conditions. But for those that had already served during the pandemic, to make a decision to keep their job, what a slap in the face that is. That These were the same men and women, including myself, we were out there with no vaccine, right? And no one knew uh, what type of equipment was appropriate, right? And we didn't get missed way too late. Yeah, and now you, are, you have to make a decision if the vaccine or your job, well, you know what? I think you made the right decision because if I was put in that position, I would hope that I would have the courage to to retire like yourself and say, you know what? My my ideology, my beliefs are definitely more important than, than the job. And, and that's where the job has failed us. They, I mean, they're not supporting the cops saying, hey, listen, these guys were out there in, in the fire during the pandemic where no one knew what was going to happen. We didn't know if, if COVID was going to strike us all, but we were out there and that was okay. And here we are, we come to this vaccine. And yet no matter what, no matter what the policies are, what's implemented by the judge, they want to double down on their decisions because it's about politics and bureaucracy. Yep. You know, and it's it just it, it, to me, it was it was the fact that they wouldn't recognize natural immunity to me was insane. They were telling me to take the shot to get antibodies when my antibodies are were and are still through the roof, you know, oh. and, and 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 it really like I, I, I was pushing a lot that it was. This is just a, a defund the police live and on stage, and and it is. And but I, now that I look at it, I look a lot further at it because I see that the MTA cops still are employed, the New York State Police are still employed, uh, the Port Authority cops are still employed. There's no mandates for any of these people. Why is it only New York City employees? And now I think I think it goes past defund the police, and I think it goes to the fact that Bill De Blasio was so incompetent that he ran this city into the ground. Mayor Eric Adams is following right in his footsteps, and this is just a huge mass layoff. Get rid of the people that are going to come back at me, and you know what? I'm going to cut our budget down because I'm getting rid of all these people anyway, so I don't care. Let them leave on their own voluntarily so I don't have to look like I don't know what I'm doing. And now work through the process of layoffs and showing that New York City really isn't back because, you know, as much as he claims it, People are fleeing. You know, I, I I I interact with people every day, whether I'm in the city or I'm down here in Florida. And I got, I got a lot of people that travel to New York like once a year that live here, 
And they all told me they're not going back because, you know, various different scenarios. Who got robbed of their Rolex watch by two men on a scooter wearing masks? Who got beat up? Who witnessed something, you know, and they just don't feel safe and they didn't want to be out at night. It wasn't in New York they knew. Um, so, you know, I, I, and that, and that was me. It was just, I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't go along with the nonsense. So I, 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 I never thought I would leave New York. Uh, I loved it to death, but it, it is not the same place. It, it, and unfortunately it, it has become battleground and a war zone in some places where they claim to fight and advocate for good citizens. These people can't even come outside right now, particularly at work in, in, in the housing authority. In, in the South Bronx. Now, New York City housing only makes up 5% of New York City's population. But in the South Bronx, particularly the 4 old precinct, is the highest concentration of housing in anywhere in the city. And these residents can't even come outside. They're afraid to leave. I mean, the parked, the double parked and triple parked cars take up some of these blocks. People can't get their cars through. They can't even walk through. It's being occupied by thugs. And they can't even enjoy just the fresh air. It's awful. Yeah, it's New Jack City. You know, all, all the all the people that want to abolish the police, all the people that want to defund the police, all the people that want to remove police powers, they've never lived in these buildings. You know, uh, they lived in Westchester or they went to high-end schools and they're using the color of their skin as a determining factor for their knowledge and their ability to be able to speak on police when they really don't. Their children are privileged. The students, till they're within 30 years of age, real no life experience, and they never experience what it's like to walk into a building that you have to, that you live in, that you're scared to walk home. You're scared to take your children to school in the morning. You're scared to come home at night. And even in some places, people are scared even with their door locked behind their door. And, you know, you have people, children of privilege, dictating to these people what's right and wrong. Uh, when these people want the police, but their voices aren't being heard. Again, because we're just kicking victims down to the ground. You know, we, we don't need to hear from you. We're focusing on getting these shooters on on-ramp. That's what Mayor Adams wants to do. Get them an on-ramp. Um, you know, the job's tough. I've, uh, you know, I read a lot. I, I read the Bible a lot. I self-reflect a lot. Um, I do this to even just get out my anxieties or whatever. Um, you know, I think the scheduling's tough on people. There's so many factors in police work that, you know, the stresses of the job, uh, being hypervigilant, you know, it's not something that you could ever really turn off, you know, um, Mental health of officers at this, I think, is at the worst point it's ever been, including with the morale. Um, do you think that the NYPD could do better job of mental health, or do you even see that they're helping any way for officers' mental health? Uh, I think 100%. And like I said, I love the job. They have failed when it comes to mental health. There is no help. Uh, the, the response, again, is just like training. The response has been some videos. I, I I don't see how these videos can help you. You know, as a veteran, I know 22 veterans commit suicide a day. We never haven't, we haven't done enough for veterans, but we have a substantial amount of police officers that commit suicide every year. And I've seen it. Actually, there was a sergeant I served with, may he rest in peace. Beautiful man. He changed next to me in the same locker room. And a few years ago, he took his own life. And I wish I would have saw the signs. You know, I, I now I volunteered with Papa, which is a, uh, police organization that helps with suicide. I took a suicide prevention course to try to help out, but I never knew the questions to ask. They really don't educate us. 
And unfortunately, if you do volunteer that you're feeling some type of mental stress, immediately there's a stigma on you, your firearms removed, and you're ostracized. Uh, and is you know, we all suffer stresses throughout this job that need to be, you know, post-traumatic stress or just traumatic situations. And we all need to have open discussions and it shouldn't be afraid to say, hey, I'm having a bad day. You know, I need someone to talk to. Uh, we're doing a terrible job when it comes to mental health. We re really are. And morale is at its lowest. I mean, you come to work and if you move to left, you're getting suspended. If you move to the right, you're getting modified. If you go straight, you get arrested. If you go back, you're losing your overtime. No one knows what to do. And, and anyone that comes in brand new, and I talk to these young kids, and I say, kid, not kids, because some of them are, are in their late 30s when they come on the job. But for me, they're kids because they're young on the job. And I always say, hey, why aren't you trying to do some police work, learn the job, this and that? And all they have been taught is what not to do. Well, the job said, don't do this, don't do that. But no one tells them what to do. And you said that earlier, and, and I, I can't agree with you more. And it, it's like all, all this whole job is like traveling through this dark tunnel, and no one knows where to go. They're in this deep fog. They just know, don't go to the right, don't go this way. But no one knows where to go. And the upper echelon, and that's where we lost our leadership, is not giving any guidance. We're just left in the dark. Throughout the whole pandemic, throughout this whole operation, we've been left in the dark. There has no one in response has said has given us any valuable information to say, hey, listen, this is where we're at. This is how we need to move. We have just been left behind. And like I said, that's why, as we spoke earlier, it's really been up to lieutenants. And that's why lieutenants and your lieutenant yourself have been such a valuable leadership on this job because the cops are looking to the lieutenants for help. And God bless the sergeants that are out there busting their ass as well. But the rest of the leadership has left us in the dark. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think there's a clear message. You know, like we, we used to go, this guy, the community policing model was not, is not really community policing. Like I, I think broken windows really was community policing. That was the, that was, we used to go to community council meetings, listen to what the community told us and address those issues. Now we have no ability to address any of those issues. So community policing is really, to me, it should be just called hands-off policing and let's play, let's play uh, politics with the community because I don't know what they're doing at these community council meetings when you're going there and you can't address the issues. You really don't have the tools. Like you said earlier, you really don't. You really don't have the tools to effectively address, oh, there's vagrants hanging out on the corner. The kids are drinking over here. Who's smoking pot? They're shooting up over here. People shit in the street over here. And we don't even have the ability to really to, to really police those issues anymore. And, and, and that leads into why we're seeing the rise in violent crime now because people aren't getting stopped for minor things. So they're not worried about carrying a gun because that was how – Prior to us doing broken windows, theory, that was how every gun was got. It was either a search warrant or it was a street rip using a minor crime to get to to get to into to get the ability to get the gun off the street. Um, and we we lost all that. Um, you know, would you be willing to share with the audience? You know, you're retired now. Would you be willing to share with the audience an impactful moment in your career, uh, whether it be good, whether it be bad, just something that like you take away when you look back on your career, something that you will always stick with you? Um, oh, oh, absolutely. So uh, uh, 
in 2018, I was on my way to work and uh, I'm walking into the precinct. I all I had was a uh, you know a pair a, a shirt on, a pair of jeans. I didn't have a fire on me. I had nothing. And I'll never forget my commanding officer was running out the building and said, "We got to go." He threw a set of key, keys to me, and again, like I said, that was always the job of anti-crime and all police is is being uh, is putting others before you put yourself. A, a life a lifeless pro uh, profession of helping others. I knew I had no fire on me. I had no equipment. I said, let's go. I drove him to a building on Webster Avenue. He said, we got reports of someone shot. We went to the sixth floor and there I found there was a 29 year old man shot dead and his kid was in close proximity and he was shot in the arm. He was five years old and he was being assisted by police officers and they were trying to stop the bleeding. And I had made a tourniquet and put it on his arm. He was five years old to help stop the bleeding. Now, that, that, that's not the main thing about what I did, but he was so brave. And it just says to me, well, it's not just me, but there's cops that go every day and put others before themselves. I had no gun, no equipment. And there's guys that do this constantly. They help out off duty. They help out on duty. There's guys who go to work with injuries uh, and, and, and they do it because they want to help. They put others before they put themselves. And the, and the public doesn't know that, you know, they, they want to, like you said, paint this 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 stroke, this one large brush of the vision of what it is to be blue. And the, and like I said, again, I go back to that. Blue has become a race. And it, we are now become the victims of racism. They're racist against blue because you could do the same actions as a good Samaritan. And it's totally appropriate and to be uh, cheer and praise. But when you do it as a cop, it's unforgivable. Uh, the young man who saved you, you won an award, right? The Bronx Borough President, uh, Ruben Diaz, I think at the time, gave you a, a, like a merit, a merit award for that. Um, yeah. I read an article. You visited him in the hospital. Could you just tell the audience what, what the young boy said to you in the hospital? Uh, actually, that was a great experience. So a few days later, uh, I mean, I was so impressed with how brave this kid was. I mean, he was shot. He was barely crying. He was so calm, controlled, and, and I, I could imagine—I couldn't imagine being in that position myself. I mean, even now, God forbid, I was shot. I, I think I would be—I would be more scared than this kid was. So I went there. I went to the hospital, and I went with other cops. And I remember I went there with my sergeant, and we went to bring him a toy. And uh, he, he was just full of smiles, and, and and he was thanking me. He was so happy, and and I was thanking him because. I felt like I met an angel. I mean, I'm not a religious guy, but I just felt like, wow, I was meant to be there at this time to meet this kid. And it, it just really solidifies why we do what we do. And it's ironic because we were investigating. We were trying to find out who the shooters were. And within days, I had made arrest of someone that was wanted for a shooting. And that was, uh, it did become a violent struggle. And I was substantiated through the Civilian Claim Review Board. So here's the irony. Because I was trying to help this five-year-old and trying to find the perpetrator responsible for the shooting. And uh, I was totally met with resistance by the civilian complaint review board. And I wish they would understand, you know, I sometimes I you ever watch the movie, catch me if you can. Yes. He was so good at stealing identities that the FBI had to hire him. So, you know what? I think I was so good at getting complaints. Maybe the civilian complaint <laughs> review board could hire me and I could teach him what, what, what goes on out there. <laughs> but, well, I'll reach out to them for you if you want to, you know, we could see, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you're often the, the, the target of, you know, many anti-police organizations. I believe Cop Watch is one of those anti-police organizations. They're another organization that paints this broad stroke. I've had many interactions with them since I've came out publicly and started speaking. It's funny, like nobody even knows that I know you or I'm friends with you. But I, I, if I show you my Twitter, how many times somebody shows me your your complaint record? What about this guy? What about that? And I'm like, well, he's an active cop, you know. Um, and and that's and I get that from from these cop watch and, I, and there's a few other groups what's your message to them? Cause I do feel that some of them really believe that they're doing the right thing, even though I think they're, they're completely off base with what they're talking about. But what's your message to them? I'm glad you said that because I don't have any vengeance towards them and I'm not even angry towards them. Yeah. But what, and I do, I believe that they, they really, be, they really believe that they're helping the community, but I want to tell them that you're wrong. You're not, you're, you're hurting these residents. Because the guys like myself and these talented men and women that work for me that want to go out and help these people, they can't do it right now because they're afraid that you're watching them and you're filming them. And not only are you filming them, because, hey, we're all about transparency. Every cop knows, even without body cameras, that you're always on camera and you have to act appropriately for that reason. But we know that, it, that it's going to be manipulated and only excerpts of an incident are going to be shown to give a negative perception. And, you know, I say, listen, if you really believe that's the case, why are we not trying to film positive interactions as well? And an arrest can be a positive interaction. In many cases, we'll have these cop watch organizations filming, and they never ask afterwards in a controlled environment. They're always screaming, yell, and leave that person alone. But they never ask, hey, listen, can you tell us what this guy did? Or what led to it? We never actually have an open, professional conversation. Uh, and there's and the lies that are put out there, particularly with Jose LaSalle. If you get an opportunity to see, and I, I have no problem hiding it, there's a video of myself riding a motorcycle, and the guys and myself were all laughing, joking because we had just grabbed we just grabbed a man with an illegal firearm. The battery went dead on the bike, and I had to get the bike back to the place for three three miles. And I was pushing it back with my feet, and we all laughed because it it was funny. That's part of the camaraderie. It was hysterical. But Jose LaSalle, who's the founder of Cop Watch, put out an article, and he told the public that I took it from a young kid because he didn't have his license. And that's a further thing from the truth. This person was actually in possession of a legal firearm. So you heard the public. We're lying to the public. We talk about transparency. I'm transparent. I'll tell you why I was that. Yes, we're joking around having fun. But why are you not tra being transparent and telling the public the truth of why we're in possession of this bike and who was in control of that bike and, and why we are doing what we're doing? Yeah. So, Jose, if you listen to that, you should retract that story. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. He should tell that, you know, either it's poor reporting or it's intentional. But either way, you should you should back it up. You should back it up because uh, you should like that's that there's issues with that. You know, there's there's a lot of issues with a lot of false reporting going on about police. And and it's it's you know, it's it's amazing. And, and, and not to stay on that that topic, but it's it's amazing that you save a young boy's life at the worst point in his life when his father's murdered. You actually go find the killer and you get substantiated charges for 
finding the killer. It's just it's just a real a real slap in the face to uh, to to everybody out there, to the community, to law enforcement, to to any any. I I don't I don't think if anybody really heard that correctly you know like you get really that's a really a moment of reflection for the city and i think we're on the exact wrong trajectory not only in new york city but in all major cities nationwide what do you i i say we're on a downward trajectory in new york city currently what do what do you think and what do you think if we stay on this what do you think the year 2035 will be not a long time away what's the year 2035 in new york city going to be Unfortunately, most of us have seen escape from New York, but that's where I think we're headed for. We're out of a total disaster, and I think that we're we're going to lose a large majority of the population. And even you know, with Zoom and COVID, these good businesses that uh, that that have so much real estate in the heart of New York City, well, they can take that real estate and move somewhere else. And, and especially now, with uh, that's the one good thing that has come out of COVID is Zoom and the ability to work from various locations. These companies could save a lot of money on real estate and go to a different city uh, where it's much safer and, and, and they could spend less money on, on real estate uh, and, and u- utilize Zoom and they could still get, have good employees and, and keep that business running. And that's really going to hurt the economy. And it's really, and we're not getting the best qualified candidates in the police department anymore. It's unfortunate, but I can tell you, I meet these new young police officers and we're getting many of them are, are meek, timid and docile. And that's the reason on purpose. The police department is specifically hiring these type of people because they don't want them engaged in the community. Right now, it's come to a point and you can ask people in candidate assessment. If you show any signs of alpha male, or alpha female, you're not getting a job. And it's about the, they say it's about diversity and I'm all for diversity. Let's diversify with the best qualified candidates. Who went to what schools? What type of degrees? How well do they do? What type of military service? That should be our diversity. The diversity shouldn't be what they look like or what they sound like. You know, I've, I don't care about race or color. I worked with the finest men and women, and I never cared what color, what background. All I wanted to know was, do you have my back and do you have an open mind? Let's go out there. Let's do the best job we can do. Because in most cases, especially being a police officer, you know it. We're not there to get results and outcomes. We're there at that moment to quell or solve a problem that we have on hand. But sometimes we don't have the solution. The solution may be in court or the solution may be down the road. But we're there to come up and, 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 with a, uh, and fix problems. That's what we do. We're problem fixers. We're problem solvers. But they don't want us doing that anymore. They want us to be hands off. And, and it's really sad. I used to tell these kids in orientation. And I don't even know what to tell them anymore. Because I wanted them to go out there and be enthusiastic. I said, who here used to watch cops? Everyone says cops. They all watch it. Who watched cop shows? And I would say, great. Which one of you ever watched a cops, cop show and said, I can't wait to be the planning officer. Or I can't wait to be the RMP coordinator. Which meant you were what was considered a house mouse. You were inside and you didn't engage the public. No, we watched shows of cops and robbers. That's what we grew up with. And that's what we should want from these cops. is to go out and get the bad guys. But now... They get on the job, and with less than a year on the job, they're always they're already trying to find an administrative position. And that's it. We need men and women with boots on the ground, eyes and ears. These are the best skills. Machines, all these detectors and ideas they have of how to detect firearms, they're great. But you can't replace the observational skill of the anti-crime eye, the police eye, 
I know right now you're off duty, but when you go out to eat, you still have it. You still see things that other people don't see. You'll never lose it. I can make arrests every day, even in Florida. I see stuff every day. Every day, you know. My lady says to me all the time, we go out and I say, hey, did you see that? And she'll say, see what? For her, it's total bliss. For me, I see the intricacies and my guys and gals that have that trained eye, they see the same thing. And that's what helps people. But they don't want that anymore. So what do we do? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a scary, it's a scary, scary time, man. Uh, what advice do you got for those that are still on right now? Like the guys that you worked with, what advice you got for them? Well, I tell the guys uh, that are still on the job, stand up for what you believe in and be proud. And if you're close to retirement and you feel that you can't do the police work that you know you were trained to do and want to, don't be afraid to retire. There's a whole life out there and there's other ways to make yourself valuable by serving the community. There's other ways to make a living. And there is life after serving in the police department. Uh, it should it should be important to you, but it should not be your only life. And that's part of mental health. We need to have other segues. So I always make sure I always made sure to have other hobbies. I was involved in jiu-jitsu. I was involved in boxing. I love basketball, bowling. So I always had these other hobbies, and that's part of the mental health. So for those that are still on the job, when it comes time for your retirement, be proud of the time that you served and be proud of what you do, and don't be afraid of facing the other world out there. Yeah, no, it's great advice. A lot of guys are scared to retire. I, I know some guys that are retired that are actually – they're they're actually worse now that they retire because they don't know what to do with themselves and they're 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 afraid to do anything else because policing was such an impactful moment in their life. Um, but like I stepped away, you know, I think way too young. I think even you know, we're both forty two years old. I think we had another good 10, 15 years left. I think, you know, I, I think my experience was was leaving a hole. But I but now speaking to you, you know. I, I think your experience trumps mine even so much. You have so much more to offer to the city. Um, and, you know, to lose guys like you is is a huge hit to the department, to the city, to the, the future of New York, you know. Uh, but with that being said, when it's time to step away, step away. You still have things to offer. And we could see that now with you sharing your experience with us and maybe in a place where you could actually talk without you know and now you could talk without having to worry about the repercussions of the job coming back at you after you for saying something out of line and you know i think you know everyone's like oh i can't come and do a podcast i don't know what i'm gonna say and i'm like well if if you're thinking anything that you can't say out in public then you probably are an awful person and you don't deserve to be a cop anyway you know so Right. Like, so I'm like, I'm not saying anything crazy. I'm just saying what I believe to be true. I might be, I might be an idiot. I might be wrong. So, you know, I, 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 I give you kudos for that. Um, I, I always ask two questions to, to my guests all the time. Any, anyone that comes on that's retired, any retired cops, would you sign up again at the time that you did? You said at the time? At the time. At yes. the time you did. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other question I always ask, I follow it up with, would you sign up now? You're a young man. Would you sign up for the NYPD again? No. Me neither. No. Yeah. That's, a, that's an easy question because the what I have inside me that I want to give 
to the public, they won't allow me to. I, I, I would know what I know now. I would explore other law enforcement agencies, other cities that are, you know, are supporting their police. Uh, I wouldn't say I would, I wouldn't shy away from law enforcement, but it wouldn't be the NYPD. Yeah, no, I agree. I, that's what I say. I would be looking at other departments and I run into, it's funny because I'm in Florida and I run into so many young guys that, oh, I worked in the Bronx, I worked here and they're cops, they're active police officers in Florida. And like, they, they, you know, they, they know, like you walk out, they're like, where are you from? <laughs> So it's, but, and, and they love it. They're like, oh, it's so much better. I did three years there. I did five years there. It's so much better here. I'm so much happier. My wife's happier. Um, and it's sad because I, again, I was one of those guys too. I never thought I was leaving New York. I thought I was at least going to do 25, if not 30. Um, I really wanted to continue to move up the ranks. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Um, would you change anything about your career? Um, if, if you could go back, is there one thing you would add or anything that you would change? Yes, absolutely. So know what I know now, um, I'm proud to put others before I put myself, but I think I would have taken care of my health, my health as well. I mean, throughout my career, I've had broken fingers, broken toes. I was sick with the flu and I continued to go to work because I felt the guys, they, they depended on me and I depended on them. But know what I know now, it would have been better for my health in the long run to actually take some time off for myself. And I, and that's something I would, uh, I would really, uh, I would, I want to teach to my kids and I want to teach to the kids now that are coming on the job. Yes, the job is important. You have to help the people, but you, one thing I learned in the Marine Corps, and I probably forgot this, I sh- you can't help all this till you help yourself first. So I should have taken care of my own health before I, before I sacrifice that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's hard. You know, you're a young guy, you're, you're full of piss and vinegar and nothing's a big deal, right? Oh, I slipped a disc in my back. What's the big deal? You know? And I always looked at the guys that were going, uh, like trying to go the three quarter route. I'm like, Oh, he's a fucking scammer. Not always, not always. Cause there were dudes that got legit fucking injured that. And then I saw those guys get treated like shit because there were so many scammers that came on to with the, with the, with the, with the, like with almost the goal of getting three quarters, like getting all these surgeries. And I'm not a guy that believes in surgery. Like I have a slip disc in my back from, from fighting with someone years ago when I was a young sergeant and I still, I won't go for the surgery for it. I just try to keep my, I try to keep the weight. And whenever on my stomach, I get a little flabby on my stomach. I, I make sure I work out and I eat better and I get it off and my back feels fine. And I'm able to move. You're yeah, like I always try to stay – I try to stay healthy, you know, and because I said I think that deters so much shit, right? It deters anyone from really bothering you, when, especially in law enforcement, right? Like people aren't going to want to fight with you when you look like you're put together. And that's another thing. That's a whole other thing in the police department. We see all these guys with the sloppy beards, unshaven, and their uniforms dirty. They look out of shape. We this job is too dangerous for you to be out of shape, you know, fighting with someone. It's, it's such a taxing thing. You know, your adrenaline flowing, you really need to be in tip top shape. You should be in fighting shape all the time. So like what you did is, is, is great by doing jujitsu and boxing and all these things. And even that it's still not enough, right? It still could always be better. You know, you you know, um, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to talk about? 
that's a great question. I mean, I, we've hit a lot of good points, but what I like to get the message out there again, I, I just want to say that I don't have any hatred towards these advocates. And I do believe that they actually trying to help people, but I, I really want to touch on that. We're, we really need good leadership out there. We need, we need a new mindset. We need young guys. It should have been me and you to become chief to, to really help these guys. But we need someone that's not afraid to actually speak out and support these guys because they're frozen. They, you know, especially uh, the mayor. And uh, I hold him responsible, accountable, because he's come out with the ideology that we're going to bring back broken windows theory. Yet he has not addressed the issue with Civilian Complaint Review Board at any point. He knows and he understands the ramifications for the young police officers they're putting out in these new units called neighborhood safety teams. That after a amount of time, it's a byproduct. They're going to generate complaints, and then those guys are going to be put on the shelf, and they're going to be done, and they're just going to recycle new guys to do these to do this job. So, uh, I, I really think I would love to have a discussion. Believe me, me and you and the mayor, and uh, what what they're doing to these guys' careers, because eventually, once these guys start to see that. You know, the writing's going to be on the wall that, hey, listen, this is not the way to go. It's just, you're not going to help your career. You know, I have a this one young guy that worked for me in PSA 7. He passed the science test. He did really well. Um, fantastic cop. But because he was a great cop, he generated numerous TRI reports, civilian complaints. And he's already at a point in his career where they put him on level two. And for the public who doesn't know, level two means that you're being monitored for 18 months. So when it comes time for him to get promoted, this is a guy you want to get promoted. Extremely intelligent, has the leadership skills. But he's going to be put on the shelf and have to wait because he decides to go out there and do proactive policing. And he has to watch guys that don't do the same amount of policing and they're going to get promoted before him. Yeah, don't have nearly the amount of experience, ability, nothing. And they're going to go because they decided to be the RMP coordinator and they're brushing up. And that's going to be the guy that's going to supposedly lead when he doesn't know how to do it himself, you know? And, and again, I like you're saying, like, and all of that stuff that you're talking about, it really just comes down to leadership and you're using, you're using people. You're not sending a clear message to the public. You're not sending a clear message to your officers, go out there and police hard and make all these arrests and keep crime down. But Hey, I'm not changing one policy. I don't care that none of this makes sense. You'll get, we're going to pepper you up with CCRBs and it's going to affect your life and it's going to ruin your life. You know, Mayor Adams had a great career. He didn't have a good, he didn't have good evaluations and he didn't have a lot of arrests or, and he didn't supervise a lot of arrests either. He didn't have a good career in that aspect, but he had a clean record as far as, you know, he had a couple of civilian complaints like me, he didn't have much, but he really didn't have any much time on the, on, on the street at all. So he would have got, if he was in an investigative unit, he would have got first grade, second grade. You know, if he was a sergeant, he would have got promoted very easy. If he was a lieutenant, he would have got promoted very easy. And then he could have got promoted through the ranks. But at that time, his ideology didn't reflect with the proactive police department we were. So he didn't move through the ranks. Well, I, I, I would love to add on that because I was supposed to get promoted to captain last August. And so I had a moment in my it, it, I had a moment where I sat and I asked myself, was it worth it going out there doing this proactive policing because it inhibited my ability to enhance my career? I, I couldn't, I said to myself, wow, if I didn't do this, if I sat around and sat back and, and led from the rear, 
in the rear of the gear, like like the way the job wanted me to do. Because I had numerous conversations where I was spoken to behind closed doors. Hey, listen, why don't you hang back a little bit? Just let the cops do it. You know, you can keep yourself clean. But I said to myself, I don't regret it. You know what? It was more valuable to me that I could look these guys in the mirror. Because when I go to sleep at night, I know that I did the right thing because I had the, the guys back and I had their support and they had my support. So to me, that was more important than making captain. It, that self-serving career enhancement for myself. This was bigger than myself. It was more important to me to, that I had their backs and be there for them. And I'm proud to retire as Lieutenant Special Assignment because I still have my dignity. I still have my pride. And I, I'm super proud to be surrounded by good men and women. I, I, John, I can't thank you enough for giving me this opportunity to, to get this message out there. I really appreciate it. No, yeah, I, I thank you for coming on. You don't got to thank me. You know, I thank I thank you for your service. You know, it's a, uh, it's it's you know, and one thing we didn't touch on that I kind of wanted, I just kind of want to, like, what, what, how has this all had effect on you? Because you know, I know now looking back, it's over, right? And you got to retire, and you got to retire, and 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 in good standing. And I'm I'm happy that you did that, and I'm I'm not happy the way you had to retire i don't think that you deserve that either i don't think you deserve to be forced off this job and i i think you should have been a person that attained much higher rank than just lieutenant special assignment even though that probably is the best rank in the job as far as pay scale but (laughs) but you know but i but you didn't deserve to go out the way you did like what how how has all this been how has this impacted you your family like it's had to be stressful I think that's where the mental health aspect has to come into it. I mean, no one knows it now, but I could speak to it. But uh, the last year was extremely stressful. Every day I came to work, I, I got to be honest, I, I was, my heart was pounding. I was afraid to go into my office because I didn't know what set of charges would be there for me, what investigation, because it was just mounting up and it just became so stressful. So I would, and, and how I, I, what would help me is I would uh, constantly, uh, you know, exercise, keep going to jujitsu, uh, boxing. I would sit and meditate. Um, and I would just reflect on it because it was, it was honestly, it was the most stressful year of my life because it just was mounting up and, and, and I'm pretty good with controlling that. And, um, and, and when it comes to stress, but even for me, um, it just kept mounting. And, and, and there were points, I gotta be honest, I thought I was going to have a breakdown, you know, and I tried to not show anybody weakness and, but what I found with this, and I think this is where the mental health problem is on this job, is I was really became, even though I was, I felt like I was, they used to call me Captain America. So I was, you know, America's cop. I was always with these guys and they loved me. But then I started, you know, it's like I became to have leprosy because I was sitting at the desk. I was getting these charges. And, you know, we had spoke that would be better for me for the last year to kind of take a seat back. And someone else took in charge of my unit. I was still full duty but to protect me from these complaints, but I was kind of ostracized and I got leprosy and people were staying away from me because they only knew what they heard. They heard that, you know, Lieutenant Tim was getting these complaints and a lot of these young cops because they're new to policing and as part of this de Blasio era, they didn't understand why I got these complaints as well. So it was mouthing up. I was getting pressure from the public, from the media, civilian complaint review board, the cops, uh, you know, it was hard to even, you know, even explain to my own family, like my mother and, and I don't blame her. She doesn't understand. We, we discussed these cases, particularly the Eric Garner case. And I said, what do you think about that case? And she said, why couldn't he just arrest him? I said, well, that's what he was doing. You know, it's easy. To, you know, it's, 
people, you know, they think there's this magic potion, the hands go up behind the back, and we know that's just not the truth. It's a scary moment when you're trying to put someone under arrest. And I really feel sorry. My heart goes out to Daniel Pantaleo. If he ever has an opportunity to see this, he really was a victim and um, he really was a pawn in this game. And it's really sad. I hope that he finds bliss in his life and that maybe he will serve a better purpose. But we know that he wasn't just dealing with Eric Garner that day. He had a crowd of people. He had buildings, people above him. He had vehicular traffic, pedestrian traffic. He had all these factors. And if you ask me, I think that he tried to take him down without hurting him. Like you said, he never deployed one punch, not one kick. He took him down. And one thing I was learned in martial arts, you take someone down from the head, the body goes. And it was actually a smart thing. And unfortunately, it said no one wants to see one, someone die. No one. Even I'm sure Daniel Pantaleo had nightmares or probably bad dreams because a, a life was lost. We all feel terrible about it. None of us want that on our heads. But he had a mission. He had to try to get this person to rest. He didn't know his medical history. He didn't have it in front of him. It's just sad. It's tragic for all. It's it's tragic to Eric Vaughn. It's tragic to Daniel Pantaleo. It's tragic for the police department. Because look where have we have come to this point. And all these cases are, are really mounting up. And I'd I, I be honest, you asked me what it's going to look like in 2035. I don't think we're ever going to come back from it. I think we've hit a point where we're just on a, a downward spiral. And I, I, unless we revamp this, completely i don't think we'll ever come back it's 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 a sad state of affairs it, it really is you know and yeah i think you're 100 on with the danny panaleo thing i i think eric gardner's own actions caused his death the whole like compiled uh you know added with the with the blockages in his heart and it was a horrible thing and I, I always say nobody wanted Eric Gordon to die that day, especially those cops that arrested him, because nobody would want that on their conscience. You know, nobody's out here trying to kill anybody. You know, it's 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 it, that whole narrative was just such a lie. It really was. And now look at that neighborhood. Look at that deli. Look at the park across the street. It's disgusting. People can't even sit in that park anymore. It's just a, it's just a drug den. Um, it's 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 all it's absolutely awful. Uh I just want to touch on one thing that we didn't touch on, and uh, <laughs> so just in just in uh, just in in uh, just to highlight that the uh, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association blocked me on uh, Twitter for asking them to retweet uh, a message that I could get their uh, re- that they could get their members pro bono representation for Article Seventy Eight reinstatement for anyone who is denied a religious exemption. Uh, so they were mad that I did that, and they were mad that I asked them to, why they haven't endorsed Lee Zeldin. So they blocked me. Um, I think that, you know, I had a problem with the unions my whole career. It, it significantly got worse and worse as it went on. And I wasn't a guy that really reached out to my union much. I just I would always say, where are they? Where are they? How come they're not dropping a lawsuit on this? How come they're not doing that? Um, you obviously had a lot of interaction with the union, um, with all your cases, you had to always have representation with you and all that. Like, what was your experiences with the unions? Was there one that was better? Um, was there one that wasn't, do you think it could be improved on? Well, I actually was SBA delegate and an LBA delegate. Okay. So, so I I have a lot of experience with this, What I can tell you is that the unions we call them unions, but they're not really unions. They're benevolent associations. They don't have the strength. They don't have the power of a union. And they're frozen, and they're scared. They're afraid if they stand up 
and support John McCarry or Eric Dim, then their members are going to suffer and the hammer from the job and the politicians is going to come down on them. And so we really need to get more strength for our unions in Albany. And uh, that's the only way that we're going to go and get any support for them. But right now, they're just a benevolent association. They're, honestly, they're, it's, it, there's not much they can do and, and for their voices to be heard. I, I think it's really sad. And I think they proved it because Ed was very outspoken. He was not afraid. And look what happened to him. Because he was outspoken, they came after him. And I, I'm sure all these unions have some dirt on them. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. And uh, look where he is at today. Yeah, but, you know, I like, again, I don't know what was going on with that. You know, I, 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 I didn't think it was by any means a coincidence that Ed Mullins gets walked out of the SBA office and and then the next day the vaccine mandate drops you know but shame on you if you're out there doing anything that could happen I don't know the outcome of that but it does appear that since that happened all of the unions have been radio silent on almost every issue and they actually it, it appears to me like anything that comes up they're, they're, they're talking only to make it look like they want to say something like that they are representing their members uh, almost like the message was approved but shame on you if you're doing anything dirty i think there's a lot of nepotism in those unions i think it needs new leadership and i do like they have lawyers for a purpose they collect our dues for a purpose and i i know they're not that powerful as far as you know like as far as having a political voice because there's just not that many you know other than the PBA, which has a significant number of people, you know, the LBA, what is it? It's 2,600 members, whatever it is at this point, you know, the CEA is even less. SBA is a little bit more. You're not going to get your voice really heard in the political arena, but we have these lawyers on standby should be advocating a little more, you know? Yes. Um, and, you know, so that, that's just my opinion on it. Um, oh, I, I, I think that, um, you know, listen, I understand when it came to my complaints, uh, you know, the union uh, was trying to help me with the civilian complaint review board. But honestly, I felt like I, I, I felt like I was alone because there was only so much there was only so much they could do for me. And the uh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to put this on the charger right now. Hold on. See if you can see me. But the, the the union's advice that they had given me was to wait to wait this out. I said, no, I want to retire. That's, that's, you know, that's my right. And if I would have waited, you know, they probably would have came up with more charges or more substantiations. So I knew it was time for me to go. So I did not listen to the advice of the unit. I put my papers in. And to show you that the job is frozen, the union went to the the commissioner's office to talk to them about, hey, listen, you got this lieutenant here who's got a great record. He's, he's a hell of a cop. He's got mounting complaints. Is there any way that we could get you know, get these complaints dismissed because they're totally frivolous? And the job, the job was afraid of CCRB and wouldn't take a stand. They would not support me. And, and, and there was only so much a union could do. And I, I do think you're right. I think we need to change when it comes to the, the system of how these unions work and how they could actually help us. Because we do pay a substantial amount of dues. And, you know, but it's almost like the dead in the water. And, you know, Pat Lynch, you know, he's an amazing speaker. He really is. He's, he's got a, a, a gold tongue. But as far as I can see, that, that's just about as far as it goes. Yeah. 
No, I agree. I mean, I, every got you know, it's 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 every time I hear him speak at, at, at a shooting, a, a cop's death, it enrages me because I see him up there and he's he's yelling, "This has to stop! This got to end!" All these things, and he's yelling and he's yelling out to the crowd, and I'm like, "Who the hell are you talking to? The people standing right next to you." Are the people you need to talk to and yell at? Like, who are you yelling yeah. at? You're yelling at the community that supports us. Who are you yelling at? Like, talk to the people. The guy standing to your left. The guy standing to you, the girl standing to your right. And and the people that could actually affect change, you know. And and so I just think it's time for him to go. I think all the leadership needs to go. And there was a scandal in the SBA, like you said. I don't know what happened. But if Ed Mullins did anything, that entire office needs to go because they were all in on it, too, because they've all been up there for years. So I only know, you know, I don't want to hear it. Unidentified witness number one is now uncharged. Unidentified witness is now the SBA president, because that that that, that won't sit well with me either, that like something was going on up there. Because where, where has the integrity been in all of this? Well, I agree. There has to be, you know, we could assume and we, we should expect that there's some type of checks and balances amongst the unions that they hold him accountable. They have a treasurer, they have a vice president. So I find it hard to believe also that if he, you know, the allegations that are presented against him, if they are substantiated, that there's no way that his constituents, you know, were totally oblivious to what's going on. So in that matter, I, I totally agree with you. It would totally need to be revamped and we'd have to have a new slate to have integrity. Well, listen, Deb, you might have you been demonized in the public eye. Right. But as far as a cop, you've been a legend, my friend. You're a living legend in the police department. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Men and women love you on this job. You're a good dude. You know, the people in the community that have interacted with you, the good people, not the bad guys, even some of the bad guys, though, because I know that, like, you know, you build a rapport with some of them, too. A lot of people have more good to say about you than these reports, you know, so you are, you know, so I thank you for your service. You know, when when little kids play cops and robbers and and, and they, you know, and the kid, the one kid that wants to be the cop and he runs around, he's playing you, bro. And you did it. You did it throughout the worst time in policing. This is the worst time in American history to be a cop. It's the toughest time you stayed. You held true to it. Um, you know, I leave all my guests with the last word and I want to leave you with the last word. So ladies and gentlemen, last words are the great and powerful Eric Dim. Not the last words, but just for this podcast. You know? <laughs> hey, well, thank you, everyone. Listen, uh, I, I, like I said, I have 30 complaints and I own them and I'm proud of them because those complaints meant that I went out there and helped the community and arrested the most violent perpetrators that affected the community. So with that, you know, listen. I know they're complaining about it and that's okay. So, you know, but I thank them for even complaining about it because it brought this to light and it gives us an opportunity to really discuss and bring out the message that, Hey, we need support for our cops. So the cops that are out there, that still have talent to teach the new cops and go out there and help these communities. Cause other than that, we're headed for disaster. So right. and to my fellow Marines out there, simplify. Nice. I love it. Sorry, it was a pleasure. I hope to have you back on soon. All right. And we'll 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 do it again. All right, brother? Sounds good, brother. Thank you. You got it, man. Thank all you, right. My friend. Later.